I wish you wouldn't leave. Why not? I think I feel an attack coming on. See? There it is. So I see. There's only one thing that'll stop me. You must tell me what it is. My nurses always put their arms around me. I'll call the house detective and tell him to put his arms around you. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 29 this time around, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us. I chose Top Hat from 1935, directed by Mark Sandrich and written by Dwight Taylor and Alan Scott, and it stars Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, along with Edward Everett Horton, Helen Broderick, Eric Bloor, and Eric Rhodes. All the songs were written by Irving Berlin. And it's the story of an American dancer in London who falls for a model who mistakes him for his married producer friend. It starts with my second favorite production company credit. The RKO thing, second only to the tiny universal plane circling the globe, which I will love. It's on the beginning of the 1932 Mummy, which is the first place I ever saw it. My favorite, always will be. But the RKO Tower, that iconic beginning to all these RKO films, I love that opening. First, you're incorrect and correct at the same time. Correctly, (laughs) you cite the RKO credit as the second best. The first best is the Universal logo with the flashing stars and the rotating Earth. We That's the best. We'll agree to disagree. Well, as you mentioned RKO, I actually wanted to talk about a couple of things before we jump into the film. Okay. So Top Hat was the most successful picture for Astaire and Rogers in their long partnership. One of the top grossing films of 1935. Yes, very successful and credited with helping out the fortunes of RKO, who were struggling at the time. It's also the first time that Astaire and Rogers had a screenplay written specifically for them. And interestingly, Mark Sandrich, the director, was previously a physicist before he got into filmmaking. So a very precise filmmaker devised blueprints for every scene, knowing exactly where the camera would go. You would think with Astaire and Rogers, they would have been better off with a chemist. <laughs> good one, good one, Everett Horton, or whatever his name is. Leave that part out. No, because my joke's good. I'm not. It is a good joke. You. It is a good I'm not joke. I'm have you trampling all over my joke. <laughs> well, speaking of chemistry, it is the fourth of their ten partnerships on film as well. So, if they made ten, what is it about this one that makes you choose it for the show, making it the first official musical we've also done? And strangely enough, I, when I was choosing it, didn't think of it as a musical, which seems very silly now. It is arguably the best known of their 10 partnerships. It's certainly the most popular. I chose it because it's easily my favorite, even though you can argue, and I know we'll get into this a bit, that there are a lot of set pieces that are interchangeable in the different films that they had. There are plot elements that are similar similar actors in their 
small repertory company, but this one stands out for me for its level of class, its beauty, its intricacy. Even though you might like dances from other films better, I think this Which hits all I the do. notes. Okay. <laughs> you could definitely bring that up as we go. And I think the deciding factor, Edward Everett Horton. I knew that was it. It's always going to be the top of my list. Okay, so take us into the film. We start with the overture, essentially. We first see a series of male dancers. I wanted to make a note about the overture thing, actually. I have that here about this being an extension of the musical review. How this is very much a product of pre-cinema entertainments being translated onto the screen while cinema was still relatively in its infancy. But all of these conventions and techniques of theater performance still hold over. It's interesting to me to see how these techniques that were specifically designed for the theater are transposed over and become early cinematic techniques as well. Well, I really enjoyed this level of context that we're bringing up right now because I've mentioned it before. I come from a theater background. I love musicals. So it doesn't feel out of the ordinary to me, but I enjoy grounding it in that space of history. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a bit more sense when we talk about it. Yeah, definitely. I specifically mentioned musical reviews, but you also see vaudeville rear its head in one or two unexpected places as well. So to jump back in to our dancers, we see the male dancers, we see the canes, and then we see the two leads' feet. We see Astaire and Rogers, just their feet first. The credit sequence starts at this point. And again, without trying to jump around too much, it's the sort of thing that inspires and continues my love of film because I started making those connections and continue to to this day. If you look at a name like Mark Sandrich and you realize he's the father of Jay Sandrich, if you have ever watched television from the 1970s through today, you should have noticed his name. And if you were a lover of film of that period, you would have recognized Van Nest Polglaze and Hermes Pan and on I and love, on. So I it puts a big name. smile on my face. Hermes Pan is a great name. I love that name so much, especially for a choreographer. Absolutely. We get through the credit sequence and we see the titular top hat. And that static top hat turns into an active top hat. It's on the head of a tuxedoed figure standing outside the Thackeray Club. Home of a bunch of uptight stiffs. It's true. We start with the waiter. I recognized him right away. You're going to, I think, just notice all of those faces over and over again. I'm sure you feel the same. Oh, definitely. So all the stiffs are stiffly sitting in their stiff seats, having no fun whatsoever, being very, very quiet. And we lock into a stare behind a newspaper. He can't help but make some noise. He starts to shuffle the newspaper around, which actually reminds me of a famous sequence in Summerstock when Gene Kelly dances on the newspaper, which is really fun. It reminds me specifically of a W.C. Field short called The Golf Specialist, in which his caddy is constantly rustling, then not rustling, rustling, then not rustling. This piece of newspaper, which was initially used to bring a pie out to the golf course, it was wrapped <laughs> in this paper. Hijinks ensue, but the paper thing in this case reminded me of that. 
it seems like the more we talk about these bits that, and again, you mentioned the musical review concept in vaudeville, that we see a lot of these kinds of bits used in different films and different contexts by even sometimes the same actor. There's a big parallel for me between the Astaire and Rogers films and the Marx Brothers, who are all-time favorites of mine, and they come out of that tradition as well. There'll probably be several points along the way where I draw parallels between the two. It is at this point that we see my favorite actor, Edward Everett Horton, who had a long stage career before this, come in. And in my notes, I put four exclamation points after his name. (laughs) So he arrives at the Thackeray Club, and he's looking for Jerry Travers, who is Fred Astaire's character. And I don't know if you felt this way as well, but the palette feels genuinely black and white. It doesn't feel like there are a lot of other colors in this palette. No, everyone is in evening clothes. All the furnishings are white. All the trays are silver. No, you're right. It is a very black and white world. Which looks really strikingly beautiful. And especially when we get into some other sets that are very art deco, it's very striking. This is the first instance that I thought of the Marx Brothers connection because this is the classic setup for the Marx Brothers to inject their sort of anarchic class warfare comedy when surrounded by a bunch of stiffs. Fred Astaire is the Groucho analog in this case, but he is much more subdued and subtle in his rebellion in that he rustles the paper gently, and then when they finally make their exit, he does a quick little tap. Monocles are dropping everywhere. Literally. (laughs) I think this definitely fits into the screwball comedy genre, but it's not hilarious in the way that Marx Brothers films are. No, it's effervescent, charming, breezy. It's also distinctly different because I think they're aiming for two different things. Whereas the Marx Brothers always seem to me to be about class and cultural battlegrounds, this is geared to be much more aspirational for the audience. This is all about wish fulfillment and seeing yourself in their swell shoes rather than it's us against the richies. Because in this world, everyone, let's face it, has bucks. Definitely. And I mentioned class much earlier, and I should have really said classy, because mm-hmm. that's what it's going for. And speaking of classy, Jerry and Horace, that's Fred Astaire and Edward Everett Horton, arrive at Horace's flat. We start immediately in this scene with underscoring, which I'm worldwide famous for hating underscoring. And I'll try to mention the other times where underscoring happens. But when I was a kid, that was the first thing that took me out of a film. Let me actually say, to clarify, first I thought someone was just playing a piano in the background. (laughs) I couldn't think of an explanation as to why this would make sense. Oh, so everything in your young view was diegetic music. Yes, I assumed at some point the camera would pan over and there would be somebody, Irving Berlin would be sitting over there planking away. So there would just be an orchestra in the hotel suite, which these suites are large enough to house. That's true. When we get to one of the sets later on, it is easily bigger than our house. It's bigger than a number of houses. Yes, bucks, as you mentioned. So anyway, we start this scene in Horace's flat and... Tell me if you agree with this or not, but it really struck me that Fred Astaire's acting style at this point 
it recalls musical theater to me because he clearly cheats to the camera Mm -hmm. with his face. He obviously knows where he is supposed to be for everyone to visibly see him, and yet it comes off looking slightly awkward. People later on would master that a bit more, but it seems a little awkward to me. Whereas Edward Everett Horton, he had that trademark of nodding, smiling, and answering a question, and then realizing what he said and sort of falling into a trauma on his face, Mm. he seems more natural to me. Because of the nature of the film and the tradition that it comes from, none of it feels exactly natural. It's obviously exaggerated in two distinct ways, like you mentioned, in their cases. When he launches into this performance of No Strings, I was thinking to myself in this and the numbers that followed, I wish more musicals had been like this. I like this rudimentary early sound style that they approach these things with because you could hear him snapping, clapping. He was performing live takes. He was singing and dancing. This was not overdubbed. This is not ADR. He is actually performing this song just like he would on a stage and they are capturing all of these peripheral noises that he's making and it feels extremely immediate. Whereas what they would do years later and say the Barclays of Broadway does not feel at all that natural. One of my big problems with musicals all along was this is unrealistic. This doesn't happen. You don't stop everything you're doing and break into joyous song. The way this very first musical number starts, it eases into it. It tricks you before you even know what's happening. This man is actually singing and dancing a live take of this rather than being a huge production number that is really artificial. Because it begins out of conversation. Mm -hmm. Because Horace is telling Jerry he thinks he needs to get married and why he should do this and stop being so footloose and fancy free. And that goes immediately into the lyrics of the song that first start his conversation and get adapted. And that syncopation comes in and it feels very alive. Mm -hmm. Musicality is a huge thing in this. I don't know if I noticed before in the other films I've seen of theirs, what a musical person Fred Astaire is. He's not just a dancer. He is truly musical. He is rhythmic and he can sing. He's not the most accomplished singer ever, but he really puts a song across and every movement creates music, not just dance. And I'm so glad that you also mentioned that he is singing live because I wrote that down and I thought, well, that can't possibly be the case, but it clearly is. And it's a wonderful sound. It feels as immediate and open and honest as it possibly could within the conventions of a musical. Now, I want to talk about the dance itself a bit and how the camera works as well. So he begins to sing, and he's using objects in the room for sound as well. It's really fun. And he starts his first move, and the camera cuts at that point. And we see his first jump, and it's actually only from the waist up. But then, when he shifts slightly into the open floor, where he's going to begin the actual dance itself, that's when we see his full figure. And Fred Astaire insisted that... Either the camera dances or I dance. He couldn't stand what I'll term sort of the Busby Berkeley style of filming dance numbers. I can see why. It's a really valid point. That change from static camera, long shot, 
dozens to hundreds of people in the shot to the intimacy of the camera right next to you capturing everything that one or two people in partnership are doing in explicit detail make all the difference in the world. If it hadn't been filmed like that, I don't think you could have appreciated the physical artistry happening because you and I could film ourselves dancing right now and through a thousand cuts. Shall we? Shall we? (laughs) Too, too devastating. We could look fantastic. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. All right. Well, me. I'm just speaking for myself then. But you watch this and it's clear that he is a master. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to a point that you made earlier. So I had mentioned that underscoring was something that always really brought me up short when I was watching as a younger viewer. And talking about how these expressions of creativity in film, musicals, dance musicals, other sorts of entertainments, for a lot of people you had mentioned yourself, that takes you out of the film. I should explain, I guess, a little bit at least. I come from a punk rock background. And to me, music is about honesty. And there's an automatic distrust of virtuosity. Three chords and the truth from the Ramones back to Woody Guthrie. Good enough. You don't have to make it fancier than it is to put your idea across. So that's the background I'm coming from. That combined with the films I love, which are mostly about sort of raw, tumultuous emotion, this stuff didn't appeal to me for a long time until I found a way in. Do you recall what that way in was? That way in was basically just sort of realizing that a number of genres that I enjoy are not ultra-realistic. You could pick science fiction, horror films, whatever you want And within those, there are certain tropes and conventions that are accepted. Kung Fu, for example. I love wuxia films. The wire work, the gymnastics, all this stuff is beautiful. And that's probably the closest analog for me prior to really taking on musicals that made me understand if I can accept these unreal elements in this, then these are very similar. So why can't I do the same thing for musical performances? Prior to that, the only musicals I really wanted to see were essentially concert films. And I, on the other hand, grew up with these. I watched them from a very, very young age, and it actually never seemed odd to me. Hmm. Now, I don't know if that's a little... You were indoctrinated? Maybe. I don't know if it's a little bit of the chicken or the egg. Hmm. Because I, at this point, start tapping my feet. I want to get up and dance. Now, did that exist in me before I saw these films? Or did I see them and think, oh, that's okay. Let me do that too. Now, I can't be the only person who actually feels so ungrounded in science fiction, for example, that I have a really hard time reading it and watching it sometimes. But dance musicals? Sure. So we all have our genres that we are more forgiving with those unrealistic elements. Some part of our soul it speaks to, possibly? The question you ask about chicken or the egg, I think love of music comes first. Without that, I don't think you enjoy these movies. There's a sequence later when he is driving a handsome cab, for instance, that I completely relate to because he cannot sit still and he's drumming his feet and his fingers. And if you've ever ridden in the car with me, you know that I am doing that all the time. If music comes on that I enjoy... And in bed... And in the kitchen and and sitting on the couch. (laughs) So I'm hearing rhythm in my head all the time. 
So I think it has a lot to do with that being innate in you and that really helping with the enjoyment of this form. Now, another thing that Fred Astaire was so adamant about and credited with innovating the form is that he really believed that the context of the dance had to be seamlessly integrated in the plot of the film. It's not, uh, we're at the grocery store and then suddenly we break out and we're at the garden pavilion and doing a waltz or something like that. It had to move the story forward. Now, you could argue that maybe that doesn't happen all of the time, but I think that especially in these films, they work really hard to do that. That's probably what makes these the most palatable of all. He's not my favorite dancer, male dancer at least. Gene Kelly is probably my favorite male dancer, but I appreciate the fact that he has constructed these this way. His insistence on that makes it so much easier for me to appreciate and get a foothold in the genre than anything in An American in Paris. I think that's a hot debate. Astaire versus Kelly. Mm -hmm. I land a little bit more towards Astaire. I had him first. Mm -hmm. He came into my life first. So I think the love comes from that point. He just looks as though he could fly. Yes, that's true. Absolutely. It seems like gravity has no business with him. He's just lighter than air. The two of them together, when you watch them, they, they look like they weigh a total of 10 pounds. It's when they're true. moving. It's true. And Gene Kelly, you can appreciate for that physicality, that muscularity that he That's brings. what I like the most. We'll get into this, I think, a lot more when we start to discuss Astaire versus Rogers, because it's a similar distinction that I make between the two of them. We'll talk more about this. Okay. We'll come up to that pretty quickly. One last thing that I wanted to mention in this, that there were a lot of sort of standard set pieces in these films. There would typically be a solo performance, which is the first thing that we see. There's going to be a partner comedy dance routine often, and then a romantic partner dance routine. Mm. So we'll get to those later on. But I love, again, that regimentation. To me, it doesn't make things become stale. It makes them fun and interesting because there is an insistence on some sort of form that happens. It's not anarchy to the detriment of beauty and style and artistry. It's another parallel with the Marx Brothers thing, like I was talking about. The plots in the Marx Brothers films and in the Astaire and Rogers films are paper thin. They are there to hang a sequence of set pieces on. In this case, it's the ones that you just listed. In the Marx Brothers case, it's going to be Harpo plays the harp. Chico plays the piano. Groucho has his showdown with Margaret Dumont. And unfortunately, Zeppo probably sings a song. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, they're very much a formula because Depression era audiences loved that comfort. They wanted to pay their two bits and be entertained and forget about their troubles for a while. And when you figure out the formula that helps them do that, You stick with that. And speaking of this formula again, I love in one of the featurettes that I was watching as a part of this set that you got me, all of the Astaire and Rogers musicals, they showed the literal blueprint template that they had created, which shows the elements, the beats, the timing. Here's when he talks to the girl. Here's how long this goes on. Here's when the next comedy bit is. It was beautiful. There's nothing about that that puts you off. There's nothing that makes you feel like this is a commercial enterprise with no artistry, no soul. The amount of 
artistry present on the screen overrides that sort of calculatedness? Not for me. You know I love process. Mm -hmm. You know I love seeing how things are created. And you watch five seconds of any of these routines, and if you're not moved in some way, I think that you have a stone-cold heart. The artistry shines through above and beyond. This was simply the way to make the most economical film. I'm not sure I'm 100% on board with it. This trotting out formula time after time after time without innovation or without risk-taking, it seems a little suspect to me. I do love those Marx Brothers films over and over and over again, but by the time you get to the big store or at the circus, it doesn't pack the same punch that it does in Animal Crackers. It's true. You can't wear out your welcome, essentially. You can't drive the concept into the ground. But with a lot of these things, the period of time that we're talking about is relatively short. That's true. So it's not as though they were doing it into their 70s. Right. They turned them out one after another after another, one every year, essentially. And then they were gone, Mm -hmm. you know, and moved on to other things. And so I think that it does survive. I love seeing the back of how something so beautiful came from something pretty strict. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say, however, all of this talk of fantasy or being drawn into a film or not, I draw the line at operetta. Okay. Any time. No Kitty Carlisle? Oh, Nelson, Eddie, and Jeanette McDonald. I can't tell you how many times I would walk into the living room and would start, and I just turn right back around. I can't, I can't take it. There's no heart or charm or lustiness or earthiness in that stuff to me. It's funny that you do the Nelson Eddie instead of the Jeanette McDonald. Can you do the Jeanette McDonald? You know, my voice doesn't go that high. You can't get that high? No. Well, we'll get to lustiness for sure in this episode. Okay. Trust me. <laughs> that one's underlined on my notes. But right now, let's jump back to Horace's flat. Okay. So Jerry is going to town in his dance. We see that beautiful slide that he's so famous for with that long outstretched leg and arm. Fred Astaire for me also has the best arms in the business. His arms are... You have to watch him in comparison to anyone else to see what I mean. Not just dancing, either. When you watch him standing still, leaning against doorways, lighting cigarettes, handling playing cards, there's a grace to all of those movements that is uncommon. So the camera pans down from Jerry to the floor below where we see Ginger Rogers, who is Dale Tremont, trying to sleep in her beautiful sateened bed and bed frame and her gorgeous negligee. Diaphanous, I would say. Perfect makeup. All which didn't seem odd to me mm-hmm. at the time. She's trying to sleep. She can't sleep. He's making that racket. So she complains to the manager. And this is where we have our first element of misidentification. So Edward Everett Horton, Horace, goes out to check out what the problem is. And that's when, ultimately, it starts that ball rolling on. Dale thinks that Jerry is Horace, and Horace is married. It's the old mistaken identity bit. It is. And and as you mentioned, the plot is pretty simple. Girl meets boy, boy loses a girl, boy gets girl again. It's not just simple. It is so old, it's got whiskers on it. It does. If you shook it... Moss would come out of it. You know what's interesting to me, though, is how long, actually, through the course of the film, they are able to maintain a mistaken identity plot. I mean, they really bend over backwards to keep this thing going. Oh, yeah, they do. 
Now, Horace has gone to talk to the manager, but Jerry goes down to see Ginger, to see Dale, excuse me. He tries to charm her. She's not having it, as I so deftly played in our scene at the uh, beginning of the podcast. She leaves him behind. He picks up the sand bucket, which will come into play in a minute as well. So he takes that back up to the apartment and he decides he's going to be the sandman who helps her go to sleep. So he does his dance over the sand. It's very beautiful. The old soft shoe. The old mistaken identity and the (laughs) The old old soft shoe. (laughs) Now later, we see Jerry buying flowers for Dale. He's smitten with her. And did you notice uh, Lucille Ball is the flower assistant? I did not notice that. Yes. She has, I think, just two or three lines. And we don't completely see her face. She's actually a platinum blonde in that. Mm. There can be only one ginger per film, I guess. Which never occurred to me until I was reading a little bit more about Ginger Rogers now, who I've read about for a long time. I've been a fan of hers for a long time. The red hair thing? Yeah, the ginger part never occurred to me. Well, because her name is Virginia. So I just You thought took it was it. a diminutive Yeah. Duh, sorry. <laughs> now Jerry has the flowers charged to Horace, which that's the whole mistaken identity Oops. thing. And the flower shop owner, running his mouth, talks about how Dale is basically, the way he phrases it, the kept woman of this designer Bedini. Now he runs into Dale again here in this hotel lobby. She's trying to give him the brush off. She's going to go riding. And as we're in London, and this is a complete fantasy, she gets into a handsome cab to go to the riding academy. And we find out it's Fred Astaire driving the cab. And they go into an extended, what I can only assume is another one of those so old it has whiskers, kind of vaudeville routines about the horsepower and he didn't give a damn kind of a thing. Delivered almost as sparklingly as you just did. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We should point out... And Josie, I'm trying to tell you I love you. We should point out probably, based upon your delivery of those things, it's a comedy bit. Just so people know. That's why I didn't choose that section, because I, I don't know how to make that stuff funny. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. May I move on? Yes. By all means. <laughs> okay. So they get to the writing academy, and she's out, and a storm comes up pretty quickly. And she uh, very conveniently finds a beautiful pavilion to duck into. And Jerry arrives as well with the cab. And at first, she doesn't want anything to do with him, and talks about how she doesn't want to be in distress. But then, with the first sort of thunderclap, she's diving into his arms. Which did seem odd to me because she is asserting herself at every point up until then, but this sort of goofy, girlish, quote-unquote, reaction happens here, which seemed odd. Because she's even wearing the riding costume, which is pants, which you don't see a lot of in films of this period. So I thought it was a little bit of a letdown, actually, for me. That she would need saving that way? That she would act as though that that would be the thing that would be her undoing. Yeah. You don't have anything in particular that is your undoing in that way? You're pretty tough, but say, snake, in the room, mice, spiders, thunderclaps, nothing like that, all of a sudden that catches you off guard, doesn't produce an instinctive reaction in you, maybe not to that extreme. 
Okay, you got me there. A bug of any kind. Okay. If a moth flew by, <laughs> I would probably fall over. All right, you called my bluff on that one. Now, uh, to use my own little vaudeville pun, at this point, he's fully trying to bang her. Okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have a because I was gonna do that with thunder bang. <laughs> That's how I was gonna that draw was... those two things together. This is a huge bone of contention. Bone. <laughs> this is going to be a huge bone of contention because of the distinction that I draw between their two styles and what it is that they are exhibiting when they dance. What it is that is coming out of the screen. Catherine Hepburn has that line that's attributed to her, right, about how Fred gave Ginger class, Ginger gave Fred sex appeal. Yes. Nope. (laughs) Okay, you're wrong, Catherine Hepburn. Fred Astaire, no matter what you do to him, looks like a ventriloquist dummy that has somehow been given life. With that chin, that nose. He has a very distinct shape to his head. He looks like someone drew a caricature, is what he looks like. And I don't see sex appeal in it, because from the very beginning of this scene, which is their first dance together, you're right. He's chasing, he is, quote, seducing, Mm -hmm. unquote, through the whole film. But in a way that suggests to me that I don't think he knows, in a completely sexless way, To me, the distinction between the two of them is he is from the neck up, she is from the neck down. Okay. For a long time, I thought head and heart, that being the delineation I would make. But with her, it's not just heart. It's heart, it's guts, it's loins, it's everything. It's neck down. So I'm making this distinction. Fred Astaire, neck up. Ginger Rogers works from the neck down. He is like an angel or an alien, or something, some pure form of dance energy that landed here and asks, what is this earth kiss? He, he doesn't know. He's chasing this girl, and if you ask him to describe what the wedding night is going to be like, we're going to have ice cream and hold hands, aren't we? Isn't that what you do? He is completely sexless to me when I watch him work. And I don't mean that when I say he works from the head up, that he is clinical or Or uptight, Mm -hmm. it's completely joyful. It is ebullient, but it is in this very pure, it's not even chastity, I don't think. I don't even think of it as chastity or a decision. It's like he doesn't know sex exists, is what it feels like to me. And she definitely does. Well, okay then. Well, we'll talk about that more as it goes on, because they have actually five numbers together, Mm -hmm. which is the most that they would ever do in any film. So we have a lot to talk about. Now, in this instance, at least by his lines in the script, he's trying to bang her. The thunder bang happens, and that leads directly into, it's a lovely day to be caught in the rain. Now, Ginger keeps acting all the way through this, and I cannot imagine another actress of the time making you think me, my little person when I was very young, how wonderful it would be to be sung to as opposed to, in reality, a horrifying experience. (laughs) Where am I supposed to look? This is terrifying. (laughs) How can I get away? But she sells it. Yes, she does. She certainly does. And many people have said that the thing about Ginger that set her apart from any of his other partners 
is that she realized that the acting doesn't stop when the dancing begins mm. or the singing begins. She's fully engaged in this. Now, I love the start of this because he keeps time on his knee. Again, that musicality, mm -hmm, those things that he uses in his body. And the lyrics of this song definitely explain what is happening in the story. So it, it does feel very integrated to me. Now, she's clearly starting to get charmed at this point. And he starts to dance and to whistle. And then she picks up that sort of call and answer. She begins to whistle. She steps in behind him. So she's following him. She's mirroring him. And then he notices. And then they begin essentially a duet. It's not a partner dance at this point. It's more of a duet. And I noticed the arms again. Because his are so beautiful. Hers look integrated with her body and what she's feeling and how she's expressing it. But I think in that earthier way mm -hmm. than he does. They're having a lot of fun, clearly. And tempo changes, which again is, I think, a, a wonderful hallmark of a stare stuff. He could change tempo really easily and it looked beautiful. They have a bit of a partner section. And the other thing that I love is that they use each other for the spins. So they've got to do excellent partnering in this section. It's not just as though he's doing all of the heavy lifting, really. Mm -hmm. They put a lot of work in to make these things look this effortless. I know I mentioned how much it seems like he's just pure dance energy, but they were dedicated. There's a story, I think, when they were filming Follow the Fleet, that during these long takes and rehearsals, they only stopped to pour blood out of their shoes and start dancing again. So it didn't come as easy as it seems like. They certainly make it look effortless. And something that Ginger said, which I know you'll appreciate especially, no loafing on the job on an Astaire picture and no cutting corners. I love this guy. I love his aesthetic, his work ethic. I like this whole thing about... We're not going to cheat and make music appear out of nowhere. I love everything I'm finding out about this guy. And something that he said about Please Ginger... Don't tell me. Please don't tell me he turns out to be a horrible monster. No, I don't think so. No one has ever said that to my knowledge. What he said about Ginger, which I know you will appreciate. All the girls I ever danced with thought that they couldn't do it, but of course they could. So they always cried. All except Ginger. No, no, Ginger never cried. Because I think there's this concept possibly that she didn't work as hard or didn't come from as extensive of a theater background as, as Fred did, she was, for sure. She was untrained, right? She started... Not really. She had dancing and acting and vocal lessons hmm. from a very young age. Her mother uh, was involved in the industry as well. Uh, so she did this stuff from a young age. Now, didn't have the level of training that he did, but... I don't like when people think that somehow he carried her through these oh, things. No. Never. When you watch them, I don't see how you could possibly think that. They are equal partners. She also had a great deal of input in what they did as well. And she had to make it happen. But I think it also comes from she didn't get the respect that she deserved, possibly because she was a woman in the period of time. She made a fraction of what they all made. Yeah. That's a big drag because Ginger Rogers is a badass. She is one of the best dancers I've ever seen. Definitely. So she comes into it, yes, not having as extensive a training. She wasn't the greatest tap dancer ever. But you watch these things and think, oh, she's been doing it forever. See, this, and that's hard work. It seemed like she willed herself to be this artist. She willed herself to perform at this extremely high level. 
And I want to say at the same time that they're making these films, she's off making comedies and dramas. And Oh, yeah, she made Kitty Foyle in the middle of all that and won an Oscar. Absolutely. So she's off doing all of these other things and then coming in for rehearsals and shooting at the same time. Whereas Fred Astaire, not to suggest that he's any sort of a slouch, his movie schedule was much slower, mm-hmm. much more sedate. He, his body of work is much smaller. In spite of your uh, theories that he was a eunuch, she comes back to the apartment with a huge smile on her face. <laughs> and Bedini, the designer, is there. And he is a gigantic Italian stereotype. Another Marx Brothers parallel for me here, because I think that is very definitely a holdover of vaudevillian dialect comedy. That was a huge part of vaudeville. And I think in one regard, it's honorable because I think a lot of it had to do with generating something that the audience, a number of whom were immigrants, could relate to, particularly Jewish, Italian, Greek style of language comedy that they could recognize and feel comfortable with. You've got something like Chico Marx, for instance. That was definitely the tradition he came out of. Sid Caesar did the same thing. When you watch your show of shows, there's a lot of gibberish dialect and stuff like that. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum that's completely built on these negative stereotypes, something like Amos and Andy, Mm -hmm. which is abhorrent to look at now. But this character in this film, you find it to that end of the spectrum? Well, not really. And maybe that's taking the easy way out because I'm not actually Italian, so Mm. I don't have any, you know, skin in the game, really. Right. But it's obnoxious to me. Whereas Chico Marx, for instance, you find that funny... And you find these things different because of the level of wordplay or... I think so, yeah. and Just, just the cleverness? talent, mm-hmm. really, above all things. And that's probably not fair of me to say that, even why one thing but not the other. But yeah, I do like Chico better. Evidently, this characterization so offended the Italian government that it was banned in Italy. Hmm. In this scene, though, Bedini clears up a little bit of misinformation that we have. He asserts that... This relationship that Dale and Bedini have is based purely on business. She is a model to wear his clothes, to circulate amongst the smart set, so that he can increase his sales and his name. No lovey-dovey stuff happening. And there's also a Gertrude Stein joke in here, which I really (laughs) liked. The scene ends with Dale saying that she will not go to Italy with Bedini for this next big exhibition of his newer designs. And she starts to acapella sing... It's a lovely day to be caught in the rain. And that then goes into the underscoring of the next scene. So it's really, I, I enjoy those musical parts that throughout this. Stuff. Yeah. So it makes the underscoring make a little bit more sense to me mm-hmm. in that respect. After she says she's not going to participate in this exhibition, she goes down to the hotel lobby. Again, another set of circumstances that perpetuate this mistaken identity thing where Jerry and Horace are both up in a mezzanine. One is blocked from view. They hand over an identifying piece, the briefcase, I think, in this case. So, whoops. One more time. We are now an hour into the film? Probably, yeah. It's, like I said, they really make this thing draw out. And we are no closer to her having any understanding of who he really is. Yes. 
She essentially, though, the important part is she thinks that Jerry is Horace, who is married to her friend. Mm -hmm. So she thinks that a married man has been trying to make love to her, in quotes. 1935 style. That also really threw me off as a kid. I assumed that when someone said making love in a film of that time, which they would, that they were talking about sex. I didn't know it had a whole other meaning. Mm. Well, she slaps him, and this creates an uproar. And there has to be an actual investigation. More monocles are dropped. Dropping. Now, Horace is very concerned because they've got this show coming up, and he can't have any scandal associated with it for some reason. Yeah, you can't have Fatty Arbuckle opening your musical review. (laughs) Get with it. Not good for the box office. Now, in this section, we get into a little bit of this sort of continued double entendre stuff with both... Horace and Bedini. Now, the actors, Eric Rhodes and Edward Everett Horton, were evidently known to be gay in the industry. Mm -hmm. And this is 1935. The Hayes office, the production code, was in full swing at this point. Sadly, they warned RKO that they should avoid any idea of actors being pansy in character. That is a quote. Mm -hmm. This had a major effect on the line that Bedini delivers over and over again when talking about how he will deal with dispensing justice in this case of mistaken identity. Kiss for the women, sword for the man. Yes. The original line was whip for the woman. Mm. No one seemed to understand what anybody was actually saying at any (laughs) point, (laughs) or maybe through the lens of modern audiences. But there are a number of times where things like this get said. So let's go to Italy. Okay. We're going to take the whole crew there. Madge is already there. Madge played by... The wonderful Helen Broderick. This is is her film debut, by the way. She's fantastic. She is so good. Again, Marx Brothers analog. She's the Margaret Dumont of the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers films. But so sharp and very funny and very disdainful. Yes, she's not a society matron exactly, but she's a foil in a similar way. You're right. She's more cynical, I feel like. Not in a bad way. But in a way that she knows the deal. She, she does. She's the B. Arthur character. For there you me. go. Better. <laughs> Though Margaret Dumont is wonderful. And again, one of those things, unless you go back and actually watch the films, you don't realize how great mm-hmm. she is. But anyway. Dale wants to go to Italy in part to tell Madge the truth, what she thinks is the truth. Jerry's just there to chase after Dale. I didn't mention him earlier, I'm so sorry, but we have Eric Bloor, the wonderful Eric Bloor. He's the best. He is, as Horace's valet, Bates. Again, another one of the fantastic repertory players that pop up in a number of these films. I think at least four, maybe more. To me, he's the best, very best in this one. I would would wholeheartedly agree. It is one of the few times that a character that is deployed for, quote, comic relief, unquote, is actually funny. Yes. This is another reason why I chose this one. This is the most deft use of these other character actors Mm, in this. This works the best for me. I could watch an entire film about the two of them, about Madge and Bates, and that thing would be a riot. Yeah. Now, Horace sets Bates on the task of trying to figure out what's going on with Dale. Is she this designing woman after Jerry to bring down the new show or what's happening? So he's going to be off with some other machinations that we'll find out about later. But right before Jerry's got to do his show, 
So <laughs> toss all the rest of this aside. I got to be on stage here in five minutes, evidently. The orchestra begins, always a wonderful moment. And they start with the top hat number. Mm-hmm. Backstage, also, again, to me, something that seemed true at the time, but I would figure out later was probably wildly implausible. They're starting the second act. Everybody's already talking about how much they love the first act, including the critics. So how you would get that information, I don't really know, but people are already sending their telegrams and everybody's loving it and thinks it's wonderful. But then we get to see the big top hat number. And we start with at least 20 dancers on stage. There are a lot of male dancers. You made me think of this again when you mentioned the issues with Edward Everett Horton and Eric Rhodes in the production code. We have yet to see, aside from Ginger Rogers, a single female dancer so far which I thought was really unique because I'm used to, like we mentioned, those Busby Berkeley numbers, which are girls, 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 gold diggers of 1933 or whatever. All of the Ziegfeld Folly stuff. Yeah. We have yet to see a single female dancer except for Ginger Rogers so far and only her in pants in a rain soaked gazebo. Not the most glamorous so far. Yes. Except for, the settings and the costuming. But that gets really amped up here in a little bit. Oh, definitely. But at the moment, it's not going to get any more glamorous because really these male dancers, it looks like they were hired for their height mm-hmm. or by the yard. <laughs> I mean, they no one distinguishes them, themselves in the background. It's all about Fred Astaire. But we start with all the top hats, all of the canes. And again, as in that first number, He begins singing first, and the camera is just filming him waist up. And it's still that same sense that he is singing live. It sounds so Mm -hmm. immediate at this point. Now, there's a break in the song, and then that's when we see the camera again take in his whole body because the dance is about to begin in earnest. And the male background dancers all leave, and we begin just with Fred. This is another one of his hallmarks, which is using some sort of bit of business or prop. Mm -hmm to great effect in his dance to distinguish it from a lot of other people as well, how deftly he's able to use those sorts of things. The other thing that really asserted itself in this scene for me was his use of very small movements. He also pauses or can incorporate full stops in his movement. And the big finish, the very famous one, is when the dancers come back into the background and he shoots them with his cane like it's a Tommy gun. What do you think this sequence is saying? I was watching that thinking to myself, what is he killing? What is he doing away with? What is symbolically being murdered on stage in this scene? Is it all of his rivals? I can't remember the lyrics of the song that well that would suggest what that answer would be. I don't think Mm, it's in the song. No, it's not. Top hat, white tie, and tails? Yeah has nothing to do with (laughs) the St. Valentine's Day Massacre that's taking place (laughs) on screen. (laughs) It looks great. It does. That's what matters. But I'm still puzzled by what it is that is symbolically taking place in that segment. I'm sorry, I will have to do more research and get back to you on that one. Well, it's a boffo big finish. (laughs) It brings the house down. As, As well it should. It's a fantastic piece. And in that sense of what a musical review was that the curtain comes across at the end and these things don't necessarily have a deeper meaning and they're certainly not woven together in the stage version by a plot. It's just scenes. 
Well, everyone at the Thackeray Club loved it. They're in the balcony, falling over each other. Monocle's dropping again, having a great time. The orchestra is still playing the music, and there's that nice little bit of business where that orchestra morphs into the orchestra in the Lido along the canals. Here's where we get another eyeful of the beautiful scenic design, and it is Art Deco to the max. It's supposed to represent Venice. Yes. Correct? Yes. And now this is really Cafe Society. And did you notice the uh, couple of butts that go walking by, by the way? <laughs> if you missed it somehow, I don't know how that's possible because I did not front miss and center. It. I did not miss it. Summer of butts. Get it trending. Now Dale is in her sort of sporting costume and she meets up with Madge who we get into another one of those sort of what's actually happening and I don't understand because Madge is asking what she thinks of her husband. Dale has to tiptoe around it. They talk about flirting and Madge is delighted by the idea that Horace was flirting with her and Dale is of course very shocked by this. So talking about different people and different levels of involvement. Mm Mm-hmm. And we get that funny little bit where Bates is back paddling in his bathing costume through the canal. All of a sudden, it's completely freewheeling. We've got the butts. We've got Madge in what seems like an open marriage, maybe, as far as Dale is concerned. We've got Bates swimming in the fountains, (laughs) basically. It's like Weimar-era Berlin has broken out. It is. And Horace tells a whole story about a young woman named Violet (laughs) in some sort of a... April in Paris type of situation. So, yeah, everybody is uh, footloose and fancy free, it seems like. This farce continues on because Madge tells Dale that she's brought her down here to get married, and Jerry is the one that she's trying to marry her off to. Again, there's a sort of spotting one person and running away, and then the other person coming in the room practically like noises off, really. And Jerry and Horace have to bunk together in the bridal suite, again with these sort of entendres again all over the place. Now, through all of this misunderstanding, Dale is getting a bit hurt because, in her mind, it's a married man chasing after her. She really thought that it was developing into something, whereas Madge is talking about, oh, you know, how funny it is that he would flirt with you, and it's only flirting. We've got the penultimate showdown between... Jerry and Dale right here, still not knowing who each other are necessarily. And we won't keep going into that because it's just it repeats too hard itself, to describe. Yeah, yeah, without seeing it on screen, it's the, sort of the same thing over and over again. But she tries to scare him into committing to this one way or the other. Returns to Madge, tells her the upshot of this, and from there we transition into the next big dance number, Cheek to Cheek. Now, this is the romantic dance. This is where he seals the deal. He does. And it is quite beautiful. And can you imagine a more beautiful pairing than Ginger Rogers in the beautiful feather dress? That gown is incredible. It moves so beautifully. It was a bone of contention during production, but thankfully she had her way and they used this gorgeous dress because it looks so beautiful. The feathers, even though they do come off of the dress, they glide across their faces at different points, especially when he takes her into dips. It's a lovely, lovely thing. Astaire said about the dress, we're trying to dance with the dress, that it was essentially like a coyote attacking a chicken. Yeah. (laughs) Is how he described it. (laughs) 
which does not show up on screen. No. It is one of the most flowing pieces of fabric and really, especially on the turns and dips, it accentuates every single move they make. It was a brilliant decision on her part to design this thing because it was her design and then to stick with it and insist that they use it because she was the only one that really wanted to do that. Her and her mother, probably. Now, this is, again, as I mentioned, the romantic dance. And they have a huge panorama to cover for this. They go all over the place. So it's very romantic and swoony and gorgeous. This is more of a partner dance. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to ballroom dance, which I'm not a huge fan of because typically you don't look at each other Mm -hmm. when you do it, this is much more about contact. Though they do more formally maintain holds, and when they do break apart, it's for very specific things, he watches her many times, or she will watch him. You see the expression on her face. It's almost, I think, of trepidation, but also anticipation, because this is a pivotal moment. As you mentioned, she's trying to get him to decide, Mm. she thinks. And at one point, when they do a turn with a flip, she smiles. It's really gorgeous. It's constructed of these incredibly long takes, too. Like you mentioned, there's no cheating, no shortcuts. This is not a performance that is edited together out of dozens and dozens of smaller cuts. You really get to see them work in this particular sequence. Because of that focus and because of that unbroken gaze of the camera, you see the development of these emotions take place like you described. And the end of it is wonderful because they end very close. He ends with his leg crossover. You mentioned his body movements and how he conveys so much that way. Everything is calculated for maximum elegance and grace. And you see her breathing. And I don't mean out of breath. I just danced for five minutes. It's more of that, again, my partner is so close and what's happening to us. At least that's how I read it. There's that split between the two. He's Grace, and she is uh, feeling it everywhere else. And I think here you you register that she understands they're not playing around Mm -hmm. at any point. Whatever this sort of farce is that's happening, something more is taking place between the two of them. I think that's all coming from her in terms of passion. Because when I watch him do this stuff, there's about as much sex in it as a game of sorry. Well... (laughs) which I would play by myself as an only child. Um, Whatever that thing was, he, I think, was still able to inspire that in others to feel that for him. Maybe it wasn't exuding from his pores, but I'm quite attracted to him, and I know many, many other people were. Really? He seems much more like the eternal brother. Or again, some unearthly thing. But maybe it's just falling into the romantic trap of she made it look like it was the most wonderful Hmm. moment in the world. I see that. We've got some more farce continuing, which I will not belabor us with. Right. But it turns out... Finally, though, they figure out that all of this is a case of mistaken identity. Yes. It takes the whole film, practically, but they do finally straighten out this mess. Yes. Also with uh, Dale and Bedini didn't actually get married because it was Bates who was dressed as a chaplain. So (laughs) Bates is crafty. Yeah. 
boy, but it does take until the final reel. It does, because there's still a, a ride in a gondola, there's still a boat going out to sea, then they come back, and the, yeah, it still goes on and on and on. Now, anyway... There's a great scene, though, I don't want to skip over the scene, where Bates is insulting the constable. That's one of my favorite bits. It's a pretty great bits. one. I love that Pretty bit. great one. We'll leave that for the viewing of the okay. movie. Watch it just for that. We end... With one final dance, which is the Piccolino. Now, interestingly, this two-minute dance filmed in one take. Pretty great. We do get some of that Busby Berkeley stuff, too. I was going to say, this one was the least appealing of all the numbers for me. You're thinking big finish, you're thinking grand finale, and it just sort of undercuts everything you've done up to this point because what is great about these movies is watching the two of them up close reacting to each other not watching a human maypole and also if you have a film that's only those big set pieces it looks grand Mm -hmm. right but if you see this after you saw two consummate professionals and artists and then you see well that lady's out of time and that guy doesn't know what he's doing and it's just a bunch of people flopping around Is that what Piccolino translates to? I think so. Bunch it's of people Italian flopping for around. flopping around. I think so. But they do, their part of the dance, though, is really great. Yeah, I just wish it wasn't couched in this larger grand finale production number. It takes away from it for me. Yeah. I wish they could have ended with cheek to cheek, and that would be it, basically. Or even up the ante from that point, or something joyous but not sort of silly and with these other people that we didn't want to see. And unfortunately, the end. Yeah. So credits roll. Do you have more to say about why you specifically chose this, or do you think we've covered it in enough detail? I think we have. Um, I love it, simply. It's beautiful. It's fun. It inspired me to watch all of their other films, which I also enjoy. Some elements in those films I like more than certain things in this, but this is the whole package. That's where I was going to go with my part of this. I really prefer The Gay Divorcee. Which was before this. Right. Because you get to see Ginger do so much more. I think the one thing that lets me down about this is that in comparison to other movies in that series, she doesn't get to do as much, it feels like. She doesn't get to unleash that erotic passionate however you want to classify it she doesn't get to unleash that energy the same way in this that she does in some of those others it could be a function of the social status of the characters in the films where they're playing slightly more blue collar types they get to be a little more raw i think and this is a lot more about refinement and so i think it might suffer a little bit for me in regards to her performance because of that i would rather get to see her just be given free reign And it feels like that did not happen. It was a little too tightly controlled, what she was allowed to do. Well, I would say, I hope everybody just watches all of them and decide for yourself which is your favorite. Because in Swing Time, there is a specific dance number that is my absolute favorite of everything. But other characterizations I do not find as interesting and the story isn't quite as great mm-hmm. but she has a great interpretation in swing time of the song A Fine Romance she's wonderful in that scene and then in Roberta which was the same year as Top Hat she is playing a completely different character and very fun is Roberta the one with Irene Dunn yes I do like Irene Dunn yes um so this one while not maybe 
high points across the board is the most consistent performer in all of these sort of subcategories. The level of artistry, the use of secondary characters, the set design, the costume design, it's consistently the strongest in all of these categories for you? I think so. His solos are the absolute best as well. And like I mentioned, the supporting players are my absolute favorite combination in this film. So I think a good place to end is to recommend that you go watch all 10 of their pairings together. Are you sneaking in? I am a little bit. And I'm going to go even further. Check out all of Fred Astaire's movies and see if there's a partner you like him with even more than Ginger Rogers. There's no way. He only danced with any other actress twice at most in any other film. He was never partnered with anybody more than twice. It was some big names, right? Sid Charisse, Rita Hayworth. Or Judy Garland. Or... Even the people that he was just in one film with is some of the greatest dance ever captured on film. But you know what? We're not going to do that. Okay, what are you going to do? We're going to do specific recommendations. Okay. I'm going to let you go first this time. Okay. My recommendation this time is a fantastic documentary that we saw a couple of years ago. And probably my favorite piece of dance that I have ever seen visually recorded is in this film. My selection this time is Afternoon of a Fawn, Tanakeel Leclerc, directed by Nancy Bierski in 2013, and it's the story of Tanakeel Leclerc, who is one of the preeminent ballet dancers of the 20th century, and it follows the arc of her life and loves being the muse of two of the most prominent choreographers of the 20th century, Jerome Robbins and George Balanchine, and then chronicling that extreme success contrasted with the terrible period she went through when she contracted a sudden illness and it changed her life and career completely. It is incredibly beautiful and super interesting. She's a really charismatic performer, but in general, just as a screen presence, even when not dancing, she is really compelling and her story is definitely an emotional roller coaster. And when you see her and Jacques D'Ambois perform the titular Afternoon of a Fawn piece that was recorded for television, I think, you want to talk about neck down. I have not seen an earthier but still supremely artistic piece of dance anywhere that surpasses that for me. It is mind-boggling to go back and watch that. I could watch it again and again and again. And I am not a huge dance or musical theater person. But it is astounding to watch the ideas and the emotion that they convey in that short piece. It is unbelievable. I would recommend it, if only for that short segment, but the story is really fascinating, too. What is your recommendation? Or do you have 20 of them? I do not. I have one. Okay. I narrowed it down from 20. Inspired by Ginger Rogers. Fuck Rogers. No. (laughs) This is a film... (laughs) that I really enjoy, that never, ever, ever gets talked about. I'm pretty sure you had never heard of it when I mentioned it. It doesn't get shown very often. It is Black Widow from 1954. I have not seen it. You're right. Now, this is, at best, a late period film noir. But I think firmly in that period of murder mystery that I really associate with the 50s and 60s. So I think of it a little bit more as a murder mystery than a noir. Okay, we have gone beyond that sort of post-war alienation and darkness and we're into actual procedural almost? It is. It's very dark, though. Mm -hmm. 
it's in color, I think is the ah. thing that sort of throws me off a bit. Okay. It is a very dark story, though. A young female writer insinuates herself into the life of a Broadway producer who is played by Van Heflin. (laughs) Never one of my favorites, really. He is married to Jean Tierney. She looks wonderful as always. Always. The young writer is Peggy Ann Garner. And Ginger Rogers plays a sort of grand dame of the theater. She's a very imperious character. Okay. Directed by Nunnally Johnson, written by Nunnally Johnson as well. Now, why did I choose this? It's great to see Ginger Rogers in a completely different role because I liked watching her age, Mm -hmm. actually. A lot of people had a big problem with that. She's one of those women, I think, who looks her age. Some people look older or younger than who they are. She always looked like a 40-year-old woman or a 50-year-old woman or a 60-year-old woman when she was that person. Mm -hmm. I think, again, as her liveliness and her realness come out. So it was great to see her from these frothy musical comedies into something where she is kind of queen bitch. Well, I will have to look into it. It's pretty great. I really enjoy it. So, as you will say often, two great recommendations. Yes. After Dune of a Fawn and Black Widow. And that brings us to the end of episode 29. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for our name at either one of those places. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I'd like to take a second and thank everyone who gave us feedback or shared links to the show from the last episode. We got a lot of feedback this time. I was really pleased to see from all over the place, but specifically from our Australian listeners. But a ton of people did tell people about it or get back in touch with us about what they thought about the questions we asked when we discussed Van Diemen's Land. The guys at FUDS on Film, Grindhouse Dave, Jeff Duncanson, Travis Trudell, Chad Engelbert, Michael and Heather Scharf, Ross McLeod, Nathan Kennett, We also had people make a lot of great recommendations for us. RJ Tugas pointed out that we should check out The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which I've already ordered. It should be on the way here any day now. Matteo Boscarol, following the cannibalism angle of Van Diemen's Land, mentioned Fires on the Plain, which we have the one that Kone Ichikawa made, but he also hipped me to the fact that there's a more recent remake that's worth checking out. Tim Lego mentioned 10 canoes which i've already ordered as well so lots of cool (laughs) stuff in the mailbox coming via our australian friends leon huxtable wrote a really thoughtful and detailed response to the questions we were asking about australian national identity tim lego did as well and it was interesting to see what a vast difference between their two answers they were sort of at either end of the spectrum Leon also mentioned a couple of films that would be worth tracking down if you are interested in Australian film, in particular The Castle, which I think you like, you've seen. Yes, I saw it at a film festival and have been talking about it ever since, and I've mentioned it to you a few times, but we have not watched it together yet. Right, I haven't sat down to see it yet. And then a film called Backyard Ashes, which seems very much like if one of our favorites, Bill Forsyth, made an Australian working class comedy. Leon also does a really fun podcast called Ya Gaday with his friend Tim. So if you are interested in what a couple of young Australian guys from Sydney have to say about all sorts of things, go find Ya Gaday and listen to their exploits and adventures. 
And in addition to talking about our most recent podcast, I really enjoyed a couple of those folks mentioning shows that they had tracked back to, so previous episodes, and continuing to have conversations about that. That's always fun. Keep the comments coming, please. And Leon turned in a review for us on iTunes as well, as did our friend Aaron King. So thank you, both of you, for going to the trouble to do that. If you would like to do that as well, you can subscribe to, rate, or review the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. We are on Google Play for you Android users. And finally, if you would like to find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, you can find those at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 